Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. This is episode 17, How to Keep Score in Your Investment Account. Sounds kind of dull, eh? Well, it isn't. It's about something really important, how you do in the market. You might be surprised by how much confusion there is in regard to measuring outcomes in the investment industry. The issue came up in episode four, a conversation with David Solomon. He and his co-author, Samuel Hartsmark, have done a work on how opaque investment management can be. Our conclusions about that confusion are quite different, but we agree on the problem. So in this episode, we're going to make sure everyone is keeping score the same way, or is at least aware of the implications of keeping score in different ways. To judge by the market, the media, and the indices, uh, one might reasonably conclude that the mantra, buy low, sell high, and repeat frequently, that that mantra would appear to capture all you need to know about keeping score. You want stocks that will go up in price, period. Seems simple enough. Stocks uh, change price during the course of the day, the week, the year, the decade. Uh, Compare the starting and ending points, and you have theoretical gains or losses. Leading indices are set up the same way. They represent a weighted basket of stock prices. Numbers change during the course of the trading session, and the index adjusts accordingly. Beyond the market itself, in securities law, in investment policy statements, in the style boxes, in institutional mandates, etc., the phrase capital appreciation has pride of place. But it doesn't stop there. Consider stock charts. A hundred times a day, market participants look at stock charts, a visualization of share prices over time. You want to see the price having a slope to the upper right, rising over time. A price chart that is flat, well, is flat. That can't be good. It doesn't take long for the chart to take on a life of its own, with whole legions of market participants trying to divine the future shape of the chart based on the past shape. Their whole world is the price change of an asset. So to summarize, we have prices, the goal of capital appreciation, and charts moving to the upper right. This all seems straightforward enough, but it isn't a complete rendering of investment management. In fact, for some investors, the share price focus that dominates the market may be quite misleading. Perhaps the best way to judge the share price game in proper context is to compare to how other types of assets are judged, say private businesses or real estate. They too have prices, though perhaps not with the daily bids and asks that stocks have. In each case, however, more importantly, the asset owner derives some direct cash benefit from the asset which is separate from the price. case of private businesses or real estate, the owner gets a share of the profits or, or the rents. Very few people buy rental real estate or pizza parlors or franchise businesses expecting only to flip it for a higher price down the road and never taking a penny from the business in the interim. Indeed, the price of commercial real estate is very closely tied to the cash flows the buyer can expect to receive from it. More generally, the price of most business assets is tied to the regular cash flows received from ownership of said asset. Maybe not in the U.S. stock market but just about every other business, uh, business market operates in that fashion, and for good reason. What's important from the perspective of measuring investment returns in the stock market is, first, the realization that most assets provide a return separate from just changes in the market price. And second, the thinking about how to value those assets is much more oriented towards the income derived from that ownership, not just the price of the asset in the marketplace. In fact, the sale price of an asset may not matter all that much in certain circumstances. Uh, Do the math. 
If an investment is held long enough, the benefits from the cash flows associated with the ongoing ownership dwarf the differences between the purchase price and some sale price 10 or 20 or 30 years hence. It turns out in this extreme case, capital appreciation may not matter at all. That is particularly so if you consider the cash flows in a discounted matter, the net present value of an investment. This exercise has an element to it called duration, something we discussed in a prior podcast. And it means that the price of an asset decades down the road may not matter as much as the cash flow that the owner receives in the interim period. So to summarize, we have two conceptual ways of thinking about returns, one based on changes in the market price with little regard for what happens in the intervening period, and the second based on what I consider actual utility with somewhat less, not not zero, but somewhat less regard for the change in the market price. They're not exactly opposite, but they are quite different from one another. Okay, let's return to the stock market, your, your brokerage statement and keeping score. As almost all listeners know, the proper and full accounting for an investment outcome is called total return. Total return incorporates in any given investment period or measurement period both the cash distributions as well as any change in the price. That's the good news. The official scorekeeping system tracks both forms of return. The bad news is that on a day-to-day level, we often have two different, sometimes at odds with one another, counting systems working side by side. Price charts and mostly price return only indices with their exclusive focus on capital appreciation on the one hand, and the more comprehensive total return measurements running in the background. The former dominate the headlines, your media, your visual images, and frankly, your thinking. The latter show up on the back pages of your brokerage account and within the computers that track all of this. There are numerous unusual outcomes associated with having two separate forms of mental and actual investment accounting working side by side. I want to highlight those outcomes that particularly impact investors who, like me, lean strongly in the direction of dividend-paying securities. First, price-only stock charts understate the apparent returns when they are used to look at a stock with a meaty dividend. As you know, when a publicly traded company goes X, its dividend the price at the open of the trading session will adjust down by the amount of the dividend. It's because the amount of dividend is now a check in the mail. Let's say a $100 stock is going X, a $2 dividend. That day, it will likely open up at or near $98. Let's say that it closes at that price. It was a quiet day on Wall Street. Total return for the day is 0%, a $2 drop in the share price offset by a $2 dividend check in the mail. But look at the chart for that period or around that period of time. Oh, my God, it dropped by 2%. $100 became $98. Oh, my God, what's wrong? Will be how many investors just looking at the chart would say. Now, as time goes on, the share price will recover, especially as we approach the next dividend next date. And as long as the dividend remains flat and the market's sentiment about the company is unchanged, the price chart will be essentially horizontal, horizontal, some zigs and zags, but basically flat, suggesting no return at all. In fact, the company's total return will be its income return. It's not hard to find stock charts on your computer that look exactly like this, by the way. In the, next, in the text version of this podcast, uh, I will include examples. In an uh, extreme instance, a high dividend-paying company with a flat price chart can have a total return over time greater, greater, greater than a non-dividend-paying company that has a more typical price chart moving to the upper right. It's not at all hard to imagine. Let's say a company pays a 5% dividend does not increase it, and has a 5% total return and a flat price chart over a multi-year period. The second company does not pay a dividend, but its share price increases by 4% a year. The latter will have a better-looking chart, but a lower return. If you had to choose 
uh, between just the two, which one would you want? So price charts just don't tell the whole story. Now, to be fair, for a dividend-free stock, the price chart does depict total return, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem emerges when you have the two frameworks side by side, with so many investors, so many analysts using this form of data visualization, price-only charts, securities with dividends are shortchanged. They just don't look as good as dividend-free competitors for capital. Now, to be fair, there are total return indices, and you can construct a total return chart for an individual security. And these charts would include the payment of the dividend, but they're not as popular as the price-only charts, the S&P 500 index, the NASDAQ 100, the Russell 1000 value, and your standard individual stock price chart. It's the same with your investment portfolio and the statements that you get. Uh, They are generally, not always, but generally oriented towards price changes, not total return, at least the front pages. The back pages and the appendices will have the total return figures, or at least they should. So the charts that you see every day are not the same as the total return that you should care about. That's point one. It leads right into point two, and that is the common counting misperception that the attractive returns of dividend-paying stocks are only due to dividend reinvestment. Wrong, wrong, wrong. This is a, a really important and frankly astonishing example of where the mental and actual accounting systems are quite out of sync with one another. Total return is total return is total return. It is fully independent of whether an investor takes the dividend as cash out of the system or reinvests, its, reinvests it back into the stock or portfolio. Let's revisit the, the basics once again. Total return is the calculation in any given period, it is usually daily in the case of stocks, of the share price change and the dividend received, or gone X more narrowly. That return is then geometrically linked to the next day and to the next and to the next. The dividend counts on the day it is added to the total return, and then the total return clock is reset for the next day's calculations. These calculations can be done weekly, monthly, or quarterly, but the returns will be slightly lower due to the less frequent compounding. So while dividend reinvestment and any other capital inflows or distributions has no impact on the calculation of daily total return and therefore longer period total return. Such reinvestment or other capital inflows and distributions will of course have an impact on the amount of money in any given account. If you put more money to work, the account will be larger. If you skim off the dividends, the account will be smaller. That's just common sense, but it has nothing to do with the total return of the underlying investments. When investment manuals talk about the power of dividend reinvestment and compounding as a miracle of wealth creation, they are correct. It is a great tool, but it's only meaningful at the account level, not at the security uh, level or even a product level, uh, which is calculated on a daily basis and geometrically linked to show those long-term returns. There is a lot of this makes uh, sense once you think about it here. The problem is that too few people do stop to think about it. The third point that I want to make about counting is really one of philosophy. In a price-only view of the world, the only way to realize any actual value, real cash from an investment, is to sell a portion of it on the market. The cash value of your stock holding is really nothing, zero, until you sell it to someone else and settle. What a strange definition of success where you have to part with an asset to realize its value because it generates no return on its own. But that's what a share price is. It's just a number. You can't pay for a meal with it. You can't make a mortgage payment with it. It may make you feel good to see a higher number than yesterday, but that does not on its own allow you to increase consumption or spending. In that regard, share prices are like pieces of jewelry. They may look good on you, and, they, and you may be happy about owning them, but that's really where the utility ends unless you're prepared to part with the asset. 
One of the practical implications of this focus on share prices rather than total return is how people approach achieving their basic income needs from their investments. Recall that interest rates are at or near record lows at the same time that millions of baby boomers are retiring every day. In that environment, it would seem natural for many investors to turn to income-producing and income-growing stocks to help fund their consumption. And yet that has not happened. Dividend-paying stocks were strongly out of favor for the last five years, 2016 through 2020, and more generally out of favor for the past several decades. The S&P 500 index payout ratio remains low, 30 to 40 percent. The yield of the overall market is extremely low, right now about 1.3 percent when I'm taping this, and at a level where there is simply no way to view the broad market vehicles from a meaningful income perspective. Clearly, retirees are not clipping equity coupons as their parents or grandparents did to meet their consumption needs. They are instead taking capital gains from their many winnings. With the market at all-time highs, both in nominal and real terms, that's not been too hard, so bully for that strategy. It has worked really well. And in fact, selling shares in retirement to slowly liquidate one's position makes a great deal of sense. At 90 years old, you really don't want to own much of anything or have to think like a business owner. But not all baby boomers are 90, and the bigger issue is the supposed equivalence of a harvested capital gain and a dividend payment. I want to go on record to state that as a matter of first principles, they are not the same. They are profoundly different. To suggest otherwise is to compare 2 plus 2 with, and then here I have a long equation written out, 18 times 325 times 2 to the power of 2, Uh, divided by log base 10 of 1,000 times 1,950. It turns out if you do all that, yes, both formulas equate to four. But how you get to one is very different from how you get to the other. The former is a function of business ownership and receiving a share of company profits after other investment needs of the business have been met. Your effort is more metaphorical than real. It requires going to the mailbox to retrieve the check in the mail. You don't have to sell anything. The latter is far more complicated. It involves having an unrealized capital gain at a certain time, determining that it is sufficient or necessary to meet your income needs at that time, then going out into the marketplace when it is open and when it's in a good mood, finding a buyer at your price, say a limit order, or an acceptable price, say a market order, having the trade settle without issue, and the funds making their way into your account. Instead of business ownership, it is the active diminution of your stake in an enterprise. Now, I do need to acknowledge that uh, the relative taxation benefit uh, to harvesting capital gains as opposed to collecting dividend payments. I will address the issue more fully in a later episode of Keep Calm. But for now, yes, capital gains uh, taxation can be deferred or timed in a way that dividend payments cannot. That is granted. And for some investors, those details may matter. But over the long term, they are minimal compared to the profound differences in nature between a dividend and a harvested capital gain. Having pointed out these differences in accounting, I want to go one step further, just for the sake of argument. Consider the following a polemic, throwing a rock toward the glass house that happens to be my residence. I want to question whether total return itself should be the foundation of measurement in investment management. Hear me out. The problem is that in the current environment of very low yields, total return really translates just into the share price game for most investors. The problem is accentuated by the investor's short-term horizons. The quest for near-term capital appreciation, daily, monthly, quarterly, 12-month, has become the nearly singular measure of success in the stock market. While the total return calculation naturally includes a cash payment component, the dividend, in a U.S. stock market that yields less than 1.5% and has a nominal annual total return of 8 to 10%, that cash payment is necessarily treated as a minor player on the stage. The share price calculation can and is made daily, 
while dividends are generally paid only four times a year. As a result, almost all of the total return math is reserved for share price changes. Managers are praised if they outperform the market or benchmark in any given period and subject to disappointment if they do not. It is essentially entirely based on share price changes during that period. Let me be clear that I have no opposition whatsoever to capital appreciation to stocks going up. Most business enterprises and sensible people involved in them are keen on capital appreciation, whether that appreciation is in regard to a house, a business, financial asset, or a portfolio of them. I am no different. It is a matter of emphasis and focus. Keeping score is a good thing. Until the 1960s and 70s, there wasn't much comparison of returns for uh, trust accounts and institutional accounts versus benchmarks or peers, because the former were only just coming into existence at the time, as was the technology permitting the second. Fast forward 50 years, and boy, are we keeping score. Every day, every minute of every day, every week, every month, every quarter. Investor obsession with near-term relative total return has made it difficult to be a business investor in the stock market, and much easier to be a speculator. The perverse outcomes resulting from this by-the-minute measurement culture are detailed in, among other places, this author's prior works from 2011 and 2018, or you can watch any cable TV show about the market. They are about today, and that's it. In short, measuring long-term business success with a figure that comes out daily isn't really measuring success at all. Let, let me repeat that. Measuring long-term business success with a figure that comes out daily isn't really measuring success at all. It is measuring speculation. As all good business people know, successful investments usually take time. And as most attentive stock market participants know, the price of a share can change for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the asset. In that context, near-term total return, the market's daily judgment of success and failure need not have a monopoly on truth. There should be a more balanced approach to measuring investment success. And high on that list of additional measures should be cash distributions made to company owners. Such distributions are the primary, albeit not the only, measure of success in the private business world. So why not measure and track the trajectory of dividends distributed by stocks? Yes, uh, total return sort of does that, uh, you might object, but I am suggesting that in a very low-yielding environment, it's worth making the extra effort to shed light on cash distributions, their amount, and their trajectory. How would I suggest that we do that beyond what is already indicated on many finance screens, brokerage accounts, and endowment quarterly reports? As a practical matter, incorporating cash returns into portfolio measurement system means counting the distributions, the current yield, the yield at cost for an individual investment, and most importantly, the growth rate of the income stream. You would think that that might be easy, right? Well, unfortunately, no. The investment management industry is very focused on calculating and parsing total returns down to the second. Rest assured, there are armies of people making sure that that calculation is correct on a daily basis. But what about the cash you actually receive from your investments? That gets somewhat less attention, in part because it requires making some choices. In theory, an investment's annual yield is simple, the annual distribution you receive divided by the price you pay for it. In practice, it's a little trickier. Dividend payments can, from equities can vary, uh, so you can use either the trailing 12-month payments or annualize the most recent quarterly payment. Both can be spot on for an annual yield or way off. For securities that are about to raise their dividend or just paid a special dividend, it's a, a fairly misleading measure of yield. Nevertheless, yield is and can be tracked. That is the first step. While not considered part of performance measurement, the yield of a security or a portfolio is generally available on the internet or third-party sites such as Morningstar.com or Bloomberg.com. 
although it's absent from the reporting of institutional accounts, I know this from experience, when I ask that the yield of an institutional account and the components of the account be included, it has been so, uh, done so without issue. It can be done. The second component is the growth of the income stream. This would be a great addition to performance measurement, uh, where it is almost entirely absent. It too can require some choices. Dividend growth is a second derivative function by which I mean that is a function of something that is a function of something else. That makes it very sensitive to small input changes. Similarly, the value of distributions versus the original investment, the yield of cost, is highly dependent on dividend reinvestment or other forms of capital being put in or taken out. I didn't say this would be easy, just important. Then there is the issue of special dividends, returns of capital, and other forms of distributions. Despite these challenges, however, distribution growth can and should be calculated as part of portfolio measurement. Outside of a handful of dedicated dividend managers, it rarely is, at least in my experience. My investment team calculates growth of the dividend in our portfolios and communicates that to clients, but that reporting has no canonical status. It is extra color, but does not count towards the formal measurement of performance by the industry's gatekeepers. Why put in the time and effort to track dividend growth? Well, it's actually an excellent measure of long-term share uh, price appreciation of the capital gains that all investors purportedly seek. In the world of private business, the trajectory of a company's sustainable cash distributions will track its ultimate market value closely. Businesses that have high and rising cash distributions can generally be sold for more than businesses that have smaller declining distributions. Pretty straightforward. Even in the stock market, that is true over long measurement periods. In short, applying this business measure to the stock market, one concludes that share prices follow the dividends. The share price change is not the driver of the analysis, as is the case in today's low-yielding dividend, largely indifferent market, but an outcome of dividend growth. A few caveats. Uh, <laughs> defenders of the current system will point out that share price changes can contain important information about future distributable cash flows. There's no doubt, certainly true. And one of many reasons why share price changes, even for dividend-paying stocks, should be closely monitored. The question is one of weight and emphasis. Share prices change daily. Dividends change infrequently. As a consequence, most share price changes have little to no information content about future dividends. This needs to be acknowledged. A second objection. Tracking cash distributions does not add much to the analysis of stocks that don't pay dividends. Now, I admit those stocks dominate the stock market and have for the past decade. Performance measurement of those stocks is all about changes in the market price. There's not much more to say about them. Within a cash-based approach to portfolio construction, management, and measurement, they do not fit in. What is needed for them is an alternative asset allocation and measurement system of the type that I outlined in Chapter 5 of Getting Back to Business from 2018. How likely is a move in the direction of incorporating cash distributions into the formal measurement of stock portfolios? After a decade of very strong price gains led by non- or low-dividend-paying securities, I will admit there is little chance of this notion being adopted by most investors. But there are glimmers of hope. In addition to the communications of dividend-focused managers, I'm delighted to see early signs of the return of the concept of duration to the equity world. Why? Because it shifts our gaze, if ever so slightly, from share prices to cash flows. The end of the 40-year fall in interest rates and a, a new emerging critical attitude towards share buybacks, both of these trends should lead to renewed interest in cash payments from stocks and measuring them. You heard it here first. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Keep Calm and Carry On.